Welcome to the People of Packaging podcast, where we introduce people to the world of packaging and the people of packaging to the world. Here are your hosts, Adam Peek and Ted Tate. I, uh, once again, I say this a lot, but I had the absolute privilege to talk with Michael Hughes. Uh, he is the CEO of Elevation Labs, and we got into uh, you know his background and uh, what it was like you know growing up in Dublin and then coming over to the U.S. and being with this big company uh, P&G, and then how he has transitioned into his role. And then we really start to dive into packaging and what role has packaging played as they have had to pivot and shift into uh, you know, a hand sanitizer market along with meeting the needs of other things like hand soaps and hand lotions. It was really fascinating. And then at, towards the end, we get to talk about, hey, well, what's happening with sustainability uh, from, from their end? What are customers asking them for? What's being pushed? And uh, it was it was really fascinating. So I hope that you really learned something and you enjoy this interview that I got to do with Michael Hughes from Elevation Labs. Oh, and by the way, check out their website, elevationlabs.com. If you're watching this video, it's on here behind me. Uh, and if it's on audio, it's Elevation, spelled E-L-E-V-A-T-I-O-N-L-A-B-S.com. Here's Michael Hughes. Uh, I am here with uh, Michael Hughes from Elevation Labs. Uh, Elevation Labs is a is a great company that I've known for for a couple of years now. They're based out of Idaho Falls, and I'm excited um, not just because of what the company does, but really uh, the things that they've been doing uh, throughout this uh, this crisis. And uh, we're going to dig into that with uh, with Michael Hughes. So, uh, Michael, welcome to the People of Packaging podcast. Um, not a whole lot of people get to say that they've been on a packaging podcast. Um, so I know that this will be the, you know, the, the biggest achievement in your entire life. Um, so I'll make sure to send you a plaque or something, but in all seriousness, no, thank you though. Thanks for being on. No, it's good to be here. Adam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, we, we like to just give everyone an opportunity to introduce themselves since you're not like married to a Kardashian and probably not everybody knows who you are. Uh, so maybe just, uh, you know, about your background and, uh, you know, how, how you ended up at, uh, at Elevation Labs would be kind of a good place to start. Sure. So I'm, I'm born and raised in Ireland. Um, uh, hopefully there's a small bit of an accent left there. I've uh, been in the States for about 17 years, but I studied uh, mechanical engineering over in UCD in Ireland and um, started my career in Ireland in the beauty care industry with, uh, with Procter & Gamble. Okay. I had aspirations of being a race car designer or some other cool uh, mechanical engineering kind of goal. Started off in, in beauty care and thought I'd be in there for a little while. And 20 years later, I'm still here. So uh, but I uh, enjoyed my time in, in Ireland with P&G doing brands like Olay and uh, CoverGirl and co other cosmetic brands. Uh, and then had the opportunity to transfer to the U.S. after about three years when I was about 25, 26 uh, and took that opportunity and worked in several locations across the U.S. from Iowa City to Cincinnati to Boston uh, with Procter & Gamble and then um, 18 years in total with that organization and then had the opportunity to join Elevation Labs as a COO originally um, back in 2017 and took the leap into the contract manufacturing world and uh, about three months later I was uh, the CEO of the company so um, been doing that for the last uh, almost three years now. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so do you still, uh, do you still secretly desire to design race cars? <laughs> yeah, I, I like I like Formula One race cars. My my son's getting into it as well, but I've kind of passed the passed up the opportunity. Yeah. Of living opportunity through him and seeing if he if I can push him in that direction. That's awesome. Um, and uh, and and so I've never been to Ireland. Um, I've had I, I know a couple of friends who grew up there, and um, it's definitely on on the bucket list. So. Um, you know, what, what maybe, uh, what do you see as the difference just in, it just in general living? So you're in, you know, Idaho Falls, uh, which is this, for those of you who don't know, is a, is a small town. Um, it's beautiful. Um, small town in, uh, would that be Eastern, Eastern Idaho? Yeah. Yep, Eastern Idaho. Eastern Idaho. Um, yep. uh, easy accessibility. So is, was that a little bit different? Obviously you were in would you say Iowa, Cincinnati, Boston? So you've kind of gotten to experience a, a fair amount of of the U.S. Um, do you ever just find yourself longing for the the rainy the rainy seasons of <laughs> Dublin? Or the weather is one thing I much prefer in the U.S. You know, it gets colder and hotter here, and you've got the four seasons. And in Ireland, um, it does rain a lot, so uh, it's hard to kind of predict or plan out your golf weekend or whatever else. So uh, sure. I, I do prefer that there's there's plenty of cultural differences but more similarities and differences you know right obviously. the language is the same and uh people are people wherever you go in the world and wherever i've lived i've tried to make the most of it uh, there's good and bad uh, to everything but uh, i get back to ireland probably once a year every year or 18 months and bring my family back as well we're, we're gonna miss we we're supposed to be there in august that probably isn't gonna happen this year unfortunately but uh, and my family in ireland get to visit over here quite often you know I think everything in America is bigger, bigger, bigger houses, bigger cars, bigger, uh, you know, uh, all, all those things. And you do yeah. get used to that and you go back home to visit and you're in your tiny little shower in the morning and whatever else. <laughs> <laughs> you wonder how you grew up in, in that. But, uh, but yeah, overall, it's, it's nice to have the, the contrast and it's nice to get home and meet with friends and family and see the culture, the culture in... In the bars is very different. The culture in, you know, in dropping into somebody for a cup of tea is, is, is pretty normal in Ireland. And over here, it's kind of more of an organized kind of play date kind of event. Uh, right. So uh, there's a few things like that. But, uh, yeah, I've gotten to, to visit uh, 47 of the U.S. states now. So I like to travel around, like to do photography as I do that. And hmm. it's great. It's just great to see different parts of the world and, and uh gotten the opportunity to live in, in lots of different places so. yeah you do have one thing that's bigger in ireland than here which is uh ufc personality i think uh <laughs> conor mcgregor's uh head and ego is probably <laughs> larger than any, <laughs> exactly. anybody, anything else we have Lar here. larger than life for sure yeah. yeah and then i i saw there was uh i have not listened to you had you were on a podcast and i saw this little cryptic note that said uh your background including tending bar at a, at an at an uh, some at an age uh, a questionable age I think is what it says. Yeah, um, yeah I, think I was I was fourteen at the time when I uh, my mother must have been sick of me and told me to go find a job somewhere and I went into a, a local bar and my parents don't actually drink so I'd never even been inside a pub but uh, asked for a job and two nights later I'm serving beer and wine and whatnot and uh, had no clue what I was doing but I ended up working there for seven years so it was uh, yeah it was a great eye-opening experience for me and kind of 
taught me a lot about you know working with people closely and uh, mm -hmm. working with customers and, and customer service and all those things so it served me it served me well over the years yeah i've uh, i i've worked in in bars and restaurants you know early on and it's just one of those jobs that you almost wish everybody could do um at one point in their life to understand the the pace and you just deal with people on different levels um oftentimes and um, and especially now, you know, I mean, I think that that, that industry got, got hit pretty hard. Um, and so, and you guys actually did something for, uh, I saw recently where you, you posted a picture of a whole bunch of gift cards yeah. um, that you guys, that you guys did. And I thought that was, it was awesome. It was, it was like a double blessing almost. So, um, maybe, maybe say, tell us a little bit more about that. Like how, where did that come from? And, um, yeah. What you guys do? Well, we do. We typically do as a leadership team for our employees. We have 400 employees here in Idaho and a, nearly a couple of hundred now in Colorado. So we we typically several times through the year, but Cinco de Mayo is one of the things we quite a large Hispanic uh, population, and it's just a good good reason to kind of good time of the year to kind of uh, do some recognition. So typically, our leadership team would serve food, serve a lunch, and um, outside or inside a barbecue or whatever else. Uh, to our employees around this time of year. So obviously with coronavirus, that wasn't an option to kind of be in, in that kind of proximity and, and touching food and so on. Um, so we wanted to do something instead of that. And then knowing that our, our restaurants that we typically would use for customer meals and, and other things uh, locally were, were obviously struggling being down and, and uh, only serving um, outside or whatever else. So we went and bought uh, 400 for our employees here in Idaho um, gift certificates, gift vouchers for, for those restaurants and uh, for 20 or $25 each and gave them out to our employees last week along with some hand sanitizer to, uh, to kind of compensate for what we weren't doing personally, but also support the local businesses that, sh that have supported us over the years. So yeah, it was a kind of double whammy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, what a cool idea. And, and honestly, I hope other you know, there's some executives out there who, who hear that and go, I should, I should do that as well. You know, you've got this struggling industry, which is, you know, food, restaurant, hospitality, and especially in places where I think you're going to start to see this reemerging of uh, kind of a reopening in some areas. Um, man, what, what a great way to, to bless your employees with a free meal, because who doesn't want a free meal that they don't have to prepare? They've probably had to you know, the grocery bills probably crept up a little bit because everyone's, you know, they're, they're, they're not going anywhere. So, um, but then also to, to support the local restaurants, how many, how many people was the, is it Jaker's? Is that, uh, one of the restaurants up there? Yeah. That's a pretty popular restaurant near us. Yeah. 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 I've had, uh, I've had, I've had a few meals there at, uh, yeah. at Jaker's. That's the only one I could think of. Um, Anyway, well, that's, that was awesome. Um, I thought that was a really cool way to, to kind of connect in with, with your employees. Um, and, and actually, the impetus behind asking you was I just, it seemed like something happened on my LinkedIn algorithm was like every time that Michael Hughes puts up a post, it was like the top of my feed. So it was almost like every day <laughs> you, were, you were giving credit to other, other people. Um, you know, it was just let me tell you how awesome this person is and this person is. And, and it wasn't like, it, it wasn't the, you know, your executive team. It was, I think you called them, was it superheroes or 
we call them, yeah, the, we, we put this program together when coronavirus kicked in called the Corona MVP. That's right. We, have, we do um, site communications every month and call out our MVPs, usually uh, four to six people that have kind of gone above and beyond in the past month. But with the inability to do site communications in person, that became, you know, that became a challenge. So we now do a weekly MVP for each of our divisions. We call it the Corona Hero or Corona MVP and call out people that have really helped out, particularly with the crisis and had to adapt their work style or go do something else to get hand sanitizer production going or whatever else. So, mm. And we decided to just go public with it because, you know, our employees are on Facebook or, or LinkedIn or both. Um, and, you know, and we all get to comment on that and kind of give extra kudos on top of you know, the, the announcement itself. They get a $50 gift card is kind of a thank you and a little plaque that they get to put on their desk or wherever else, take it home to their families and show them that they're one of the top people in our company for that week. And we do focus in on our hourly technicians that really, they're in a manufacturing organization. They are the people that are on the floor doing the, doing the hard work on their feet. And we we're very conscious about making sure that they are they're recognized for that. You know, when I came to the company three years ago, our culture was a little bit different, a little bit more focused on the, the people with the higher titles and whatever else. There was special parking for executives right outside the front door, and I immediately eliminated that. I think that's just, you know, we're all here. Everyone has the same right. If you're here early in the morning, you get the best parking spot. And, uh, yeah. It's kind of symbolic uh, gesture. We're, we're in the process of changing our smocks out so that everybody has the same color smock and we're all equal employees. So there's lots of examples of that. And I think that's critical for our, for our culture and, and really to recognize the people that do, do the work that add value to our products for our customers. And where did that, uh, where did that come from? That's not that you don't accidentally, like you didn't, you don't just read a book and then, and then do that. Is that, was that part of your upbringing? Do you feel like that's how you were raised? Did you, was it embodied at PNG? You know, where, where does this sort of, care and empathy really originate for you? Yeah, I think probably all of those places. I do read a lot of books, like a couple of books a month on, on uh, business development and uh, culture creation and so on. So I, I've, I've really steeped myself in that um, over the years. But more from the experiences, right? I think from you know back working in a, in a blue-collar bar back in the days in, in Ireland, and my parents, my dad is an electrician, my mom kind of... Uh, raised the kids and then was a secretary in a local school and so we you know we kind of come with an appreciation of kind of where the hard work is and where the stress is that's been there throughout throughout my life Uh, Procter & Gamble absolutely embodies these values too so that was kind of grew up with that career-wise as well and yeah I just think you know I'm I'm a businessman I'm 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 responsible for driving uh, profit in our company that's that's my job uh, I have always seen and believed, and, and it's grown stronger and stronger over the years, that if you get the culture right in a company, the profit takes care of itself, right? The mm-hmm. results come, the, the higher productivity, for example, right? Um, we have paid people more here since I've come here, like significantly more, like 10 to 15 to 20 to 25% more than when, when I started here. The hourly folks on the floor. And you can imagine my board of directors being pretty anxious about those proposed pay rates as I get them approved. And my promise to them was, this is going to pay for itself. And I'll tell you, in our first year, our, our cost of labor uh, came down by something like 30%, despite paying people 15% more than we were paying them originally. So um, 
And that's because you get the culture right. You get you reward people for the work they're doing. You get them more organized. We set goals and targets, uh, and they hit them and beat them and set records and keep going. And they feel like they're looked after. I just read an email this morning from an employee. You know, I do these uh, weekly videos updating them on the state of the business on what we're doing for coronavirus and our you know, new health kind of protocols and so on. And just appreciating feeling involved and feeling valued. And, and she mentioned the gift card for the local restaurant and so on. But when you have people feeling like they're part of the team and they're not, you know, just a, a cog that you know, is used and abused, uh, I think it pays for itself. So it's it's not totally just being nice for the sake of being nice or being popular. There's there's business logic behind this. And yeah. everywhere I've worked so far, it's, it's more than paid for itself. So it is, uh, in my mind, looking after your people is a smart way to do business. Yeah, it's almost silly at this point. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, just reading, reading the books. Um, I don't know if you've read uh, The Culture Code uh, was a book that I just recently finished uh, by Daniel Coyle, I think's his name. Um, and there's so many, it's, it's almost like the breadth of education that exists out there on the topic. It, it, it makes me think, why, why doesn't everybody do this? But they don't. I mean, you know, to, to your, to kind of what you're saying, it, it I, I don't, I, I can't get into the psyche of, you know, people who, who don't want to do that, but there's, there's two things. It seems like there's one, the, the soft sort of intangible benefits of culture. And then, but the data is showing on the other hand, you know, that, that yes, you have to make money as a business and, this is actually a way to do that, to serve your people, to, to uplift them, to want to better their lives. You know, productivity goes up, um, which, you know, I'm guessing is, is that kind of where you saw the, the decrease? You said you increased labor pay, but your labor total labor costs went down. Is that what it was? Yeah, exactly. And that was that just because productivity was uplifted because people yes. were coming in and yeah. Absolutely. Our turnover has dropped in half each of the years over the last couple of years. Um, so that's, you know, there's huge cost in that, you know, you can save a few cents on somebody's dollar per hour rate, but if you've got a high turnover rate, you're paying for that again in training and quality mistakes and whatever else. So our quality has improved. Our productivity has improved. The customer satisfaction or on-time delivery has gone from a, pretty low place into the high 90s and uh, you know so then we get more business because of that it, it just keeps paying for itself over and over again you know so i think uh, i've talked to lots of leaders and executives i've given training courses on culture creation both in png and, and in my new role here um, and everybody gets excited about it and nods and agrees and you know thinks that these are great ideas the discipline of execution of a culture action plan, I have found to be the big difference here, right? I don't worry about giving away my secrets. I'll talk about them on podcasts or wherever else, because I think people need to have really, really believe in them to have the discipline to put the time it takes into, you know, doing site communications as a, as a CEO, right? To 400 people, five different times through, through three shifts every single month. People generally will, will think that's a great idea, and uh, but then won't execute against it. So I think it takes discipline, just like a financial action plan takes discipline. And, and quite often, I, I think leaders will focus more on, the, on that one versus the culture one. Um, and there'll obviously there'll be some, you know, what will look like conflicts in those two plans. But, but I think if you put the discipline into the culture action plan, it can, the, the financial one will sort itself out. 
Yeah, that's that's really uh, it's it's insightful because um, nobody's sitting around saying the way to grow a business is to have really crappy culture. We really think that we we want people to be miserable when they show up to work and and not be very productive. Like nobody's saying that. So you're right. There's probably a lot of talk about it, um, but it's one thing to talk about it, and it's it, you're saying it, it's quite another to actually walk it out every day because. There's there's going to be you know maybe competing interests or or whatever it is so um, yeah that's 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 fantastic so um, well I want to shift a little bit because it is a packaging podcast um, and and I personally I could talk for a long time about just you know corporate culture and things like that I think it's a very fascinating uh, study and servant leadership and things of that nature um, but we have a large audience of packaging people. And, um, so I'm curious as you've talked about the, your response as a company to the COVID-19 crisis, you have your response as a leader to your people, um, which is going to involve invariably safety and, um, you know, wearing masks and the, the social distancing and all of that sort of thing. Um, but your response as a company has been has been awesome to watch as well because you even had to pivot a little bit right into making products that while while maybe there were products over here that weren't going to be made you you seems like you kind of pivoted and started making very essential products for people not just in your community but also to help out you know at large so what was that like what was that process like to go from you know, uh, your, your primary work to making something like hand sanitizer and then what role did packaging play and does it continue to play in that transition? Yeah. So I think the pivot came relatively naturally. I'll tell you, I was driving, um, through Pocatello and stopped at Costco uh, and I could kind of see this coming out of friends in China and Hong Kong. And I'm like this, you know, they're telling me what they're running out of from masks to hand sanitizer. So I stopped in Costco to pick up some hand sanitizer, probably I would say two to three weeks before it officially kind of broke big in, in the U S and they were sold out. They brought in a pallet that morning and it was sold out. And I'm like, wow, we are going to need wow. hand sanitizer in our factory to justify staying open anyway. Right. Uh, and it's, it's seen as yeah. a critical thing to help people not, not spread the infection. Um, so we started pivoting right away there. We weren't totally physically set up to do that, but we are FDA registered and do, do an alcohol license, so we are able to kind of get going on that. Uh, and then by the time we were getting going, the local hospitals uh, were out of hand sanitizer, uh, local hospices and so on. So we started producing our, our own hand sanitizer and literally gave it away. Uh, gave away, I think, 13,000 bottles of it in the first uh, few weeks. Uh, to wow. charities, to like homeless shelters, to uh, the hospices, I think were some of the most appreciative mm -hmm. groups that really didn't have access to that. And as, as we know, in those kind of areas and nursing homes and so on, it's been pretty devastating. It can be pretty devastating. Right. Uh, locally, I think we've done, we've done pretty well. Uh, and I'll tell you the, the morale impact of doing those kind of things, uh, even though they're relatively small in the grand scheme of things, but we shifted our charity dollars to, towards that. Um, it was it was huge huge for our employees to get excited and rally rally around this it didn't take a lot of hurrah kind of speaking from leadership but people wanted to help out mm -hmm. and, and we gave it to our local sheriff department and lots of areas of community that needed to continue to function but 
one of the requirements was you got to have access to you know hand sanitizers in your in your police car or whatever it is. So, sure. so we felt great about doing that. Of course, our customers find out about that. They're trying to keep their warehouses open, so we're shipping uh, products to them and selling at a cost and whatever else just to help them stay open because that obviously helps us uh, business wise as well. And then since then more and more demand for hand sanitizer beyond beyond belief in terms of what people want and the quantities right. that they want so we're in it we're now seeing it more as a kind of long-term business opportunity but it didn't start out, out like that it really has a sure in terms of packaging and all of that and all the packaging suppliers uh, listening to this will know this already but uh, the demand for packaging that's specific to things with hand sanitizers from pumps to sprayers to whatever and version of packaging that, that you can dispense these this product in has just gone through the roof and mm-hmm. we've seen uh, some pretty high-end customers that are very very specific about packaging style and design and we'll spend a lot of time and money on that uh, tell us we will take hand sanitizer in any package you want even if it's in four different types of packages we will take it because we can sell it or we have a market for it or whatever else so i think people's uh, you know whatever you want to call it particularness or uh, right uh, kind of out the window people will take hand sanitizer whatever way they can get it and uh, we're starting to see the same for even hand soap which uh, has mm. seen constraints and and then hand lotion to try and handle you know the impacts of right. hand sanitizer around your hands so it's kind of layered on. We've, we've gotten uh, more into supplying uh, product like that. I'm working with a variety of suppliers across the board. Mm-hmm. And the other thing we've seen on the packaging side, not only with hand sanitizer, but just in general, is this kind of concern about the supply chain, right? How um, solid is the link with China? I think that, that got pretty rocky right away with coronavirus, right. late December and through January. A lot of customers asking us, can we alternate source from south korea or from italy and what do you know those two places got hammered within weeks of right time. exactly we're, we're, we're more shut down than china was shut down so i think uh, what we're seeing is this desire for alternate supply chains i'm seeing more requests coming in can we source the entire thing from from us um, and we're going back and forth with customers on that There's, there are some cost implications of that of course uh, but more consistent supply and, and demand situation so i think it's it's moving. It'll keep moving. I think uh, the more sophisticated customers want choice and want to be able to pivot from China to South Korea to the U.S. to wherever else. Uh, but there's a cost to that as well. So people are trying to work out what the margin implications are as we as we look at those options for them. Yeah, yeah. That's being on the packaging side of things. I think it's been it's been really fascinating to to watch and observe. Um, and the as you kind of walk down, I, I've been thinking through this idea of aftershocks. Um, so in, in Utah, we were shut down and then there was one of the largest earthquakes that they've mm-hmm. ever had here. So we're locked down and everyone's already kind of panicking. And then my, you know, your house starts shaking and you know, my kids are freaking out and everyone's, you know, you just kind of, it's, it's very unsettling, honestly, um, especially for those of us who haven't been in it. So, and then we have these aftershocks. And so I've been thinking through that in terms of, you know, as COVID is this big earthquake that's just sh- shaken the foundation of a lot of industries and, you know, things like that. And, and what are the, what are the aftershocks? So for example, I had never even connected hand lotion to COVID until right now, but you're absolutely right because everyone's washing their hands and put a hand sanitizer on. Well, what's the aftershock of that is lotion. Cause your hands are getting really dry. Never even didn't even 
register. Um, so that's, and, and it's all probably in, in very similar packaging formats. And so there's, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's a, it's almost as interesting to me as, uh, as the culture conversation, <laughs> uh, because I just, it just kind of keeps bubbling up and, and moving and ebbing and flowing. Um, and, and one of the ways, and I know that this is something that is, is similar to culture. I know with, um, with Elevation Labs is this idea of sustainability when it comes to everything, but, but specifically packaging. And it seems like one of the areas that is causing some conflict is like you're saying, well, anybody will take anything at this point in time. Um, it doesn't even matter. I saw hand sanitizer from a company in uh, flasks because they were like, we can make hand sanitizer but we, we, um, we don't have anything to put it in. And this is a massive, like a very large liquor company who should be able to just walk into any bottle supplier and say, this is who we are and we need, and they were like, we, we don't have anything for you. So they found a bunch of flasks and that's what they were putting their hand sanitizer in. Um, and, and so that is, seems to be causing some conflict with sustainability. Um, not just that, but, you know, restaurants as they reopen, are we going to see ketchup bottles, which are very sustainable? It's made out of glass, it's refilled, it's used over and over again. Is that going to be replaced with single-use items? So how are you guys balancing that with your customers um, and, and through this whole thing? Or is it sort of like we're just getting whatever we can out there? with an idea that at some point in time, we're going to have to refocus on sustainability. How's that conversation going internally? Yeah, I think it's, it's probably more the latter. It's kind of run as fast as you can and throw what you can out there. Um, we, we have a lot of very sustainably focused customers. Um, we as a company have just gone uh, at the start of this year, hundred uh, percent renewable energy powered in all of our facilities. Uh, hmm. That's an example of a thing that we've done. We make our own corrugate uh, boxes here so that we don't uh, stock up a, a ton of inventory of them and we do a ton of recycling in that process too. So, And our customers are more and more demanding that or requiring that um, and scoring us against their sustainable efforts. Uh, and packaging, of course, comes into that conversation right. pretty regularly. I think on specifically hand sanitizers, I think uh, the, the concept I see most commonly kind of coming to the forefront now is if we give if they give their end consumer something that's usable, if it can fit in the car, if it's got a pump on it, whatever else, that's great. The next wave is, can I sell them a 32-ounce bottle that they can refill that 100 more times with? Um, I, think, I think we're going to see more and more of that. We're going to see that in restaurants, your example of the ketchup bottle. Absolutely. You know, pouch capability is going to come into this. I uh, like the, you know, the, the dispensers you see in, in restaurants or in, uh, in bathrooms or whatever else. I think that, that that's going to explode. But I know... For a fact, the packaging around that is also kind of maxed out. So I think it will. It'll be a secondary thought, but it will come into to play. How do I make this more than a one-use item and, and more reusable, especially with the, the constraints around pumps and the different types of plastic that go into them and you know, it makes it more difficult to recycle and so on. So I think reusing the pump part of the bottle at least will be, will be more. I know we're doing it in, in-house in our factory, right? We will make about your hand sanitizer and refill refill all of our kind of end use points versus buy new pumps or anything like that. So that's where I, the way I see that playing out. But probably not 
the priority probably has shifted to safety first and sustainability second. And, uh, and in the desperation everyone has to get these types of products in to justify opening their business up, they'll take, they'll take what they can get. Uh, I think uh, there's, there's more work that will come in that probably later this year and into 21. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it, the, the kind of interesting thing about all of this conversation is the the positive the net positive impact that sort of a global um i call it a global sabbath like a global shabbat has happened if if uh if i can get um i'll use my very limited hebrew there um but how everybody sort of hit pause on life and you see the net positive impacts environmentally and you know the, the hope is that we we can emerge from this just as quickly with a, we have our focus on safety and then we also very quickly behind it, sort of like the, um, if this is the hand sanitizer and the, then this is the lotion that comes, <laughs> that comes really quickly behind it, knowing that we have an opportunity now to make some very positive strides, environmentally speaking, from a sustainability perspective. Let's hope that that doesn't all get washed away um, with, with whatever, whatever the changes that end up coming. Um, you know, we had one company tell us that they're in the, they're in the restaurant business and they actually said that you, you know, they said you, you'll see, it'll all be throwaway, you know, throwaway stuff, even even potentially in the bathroom. So the soap dispensers that they were filling up, they may have to use single use soap because it's a, it's a potential transition. And, And, you know, I'm not a microbiologist or anything, but it was just an interesting, I never once would have thought, that you know you couldn't you couldn't go into uh, a jakers and uh and you'd have to get your own thing of ketchup come out and your own thing of salsa and it's all in this little thing that just gets thrown away um so that i'm i'm interested to kind of see see and follow where that plays out um and a lot of it is that safety first sustainability second it doesn't matter if we're all sustainable if a whole bunch of people are dying but Anyway, um, one of the things on that front that we came up with, which again, isn't necessarily sustainable, but we have, I can show you here, our, uh, we did paquettes, a BKC, uh, benzoclonium chloride version of hand sanitizer, but in a paquette so that our customers, we send them out to our customers. If you're sending us samples or whatever else, people opening up boxes have concerns about handling things and where is it being and whatever else. And there's all kinds of theories about how long this virus lasts on physical surfaces, but to have this in the box so you can take out what you want to take out and then clean your hands afterwards. So there's creative ways, I think, and opportunities uh, to uh, kind of help with the fear factor that's that's coming and and probably going to be here for a while with this disease. Yeah, that's, I mean, what a, a, again, going, going back to, it seems like you have a, a natural disposition towards uh, towards others and, and empathy. You know, I, that's that's something that probably a lot of people aren't thinking about. Is let's include this little sachet of of sanitizer so they can get through everything and then and then wash their hands. Um, that's awesome. Um, so I, I I have just a couple more questions here to to ask. So one of them is I call it the magic wand question. Um, and and this is this is becoming a more difficult question to ask because of the uncertainty of what the future holds for for society really in, in general. But um, the question is, if if you're granted the magic wand, you're given the magic wand from the packaging gods, and they say you can fix anything about this industry, um, 
what what is it, one or two things or whatever however many things you want to say you could just keep rambling on and on if you want to but uh what what would be the what's the what's the thing that you would be like i would wave a magic wand and i would fix this about packaging um as as a ceo of a company that obviously has to use packaging quite a bit to satisfy the needs of your customers yeah i think um there probably are several things. I think there's a lot of things improving consistently, and we have great partners with our suppliers and distributors uh, around the U.S. and then internationally as well. So uh, I don't think we should underplay all the good things and progress right. that's been made in this industry. I've worked with packaging suppliers in my P&G days for you know, and, and through Elevation Labs for 20 years now. I have some great relationships there. I, I think in, in our world, uh, you know, Elevation Labs is about 200 different customers uh, across quite a range of you know types of products, uh, thousands of, of products we, we launch each year for our customers. Um, so, and, and the pace that our customers want to kind of get fast to the market is, you know, it's always going to be ASAP and yesterday kind of thing. So that's the world we live in. I know the packaging suppliers feel that time pressure as well. I've got to believe there's a faster way to help our customers make decisions on packaging. Um, mm. And I think this, this concept of a catalog, uh, I'm really in a very virtual digital kind of a way that has all the information on it that's consistent, including sustainable information and recyclability and you know, different components that need to be recycled in different ways and so on. And price, lead time, speeds, quantities, MOQs, all those kind of things. We get different versions from different suppliers and sometimes it's kind of case by case and then you go iterate, in my mind, relatively slowly versus here is the catalog, here are the options, put it in front of the customer and we're talking, you know, stock packaging here typically. Um, and here are the, the choices you have and you can make that decision quickly, have samples available fast so that mm -hmm. customers can make fast decisions versus that being a whole kind of... Uh, uh, level of work in itself so I think there's work to be done to enable the speed that the end consumer now and especially an online end consumer yeah what, what we call our customers the brands themselves uh, they want to go they need to go fast we need to enable them to go fast it is for us for our company probably the constraint in this in, this, in the CPS in this in the timeline is sourcing the packaging identifying it and then getting it supplied mm -hmm. and I think the biggest opportunity for all of us is is in the the sourcing decision making speed given you know it's the 21st century we can get these things digitized we can you know we can offer what I consider kind of some kind of digital catalog very quickly and let the customer make their decision up get samples of them quickly if they need to see them and just move move at a faster pace that's that, that yeah. for me would, would help us uh, grow and help our customers grow more quickly yeah and and you're the I, I saw a stat and I have not validated if this is true or not but it's on the internet so it's got to be true or something but <laughs> um, I heard somebody say that something like 70% of, um, I want to say it was dollars spent in the U.S. economy are with millennials and younger today. Um, and the reason that that's important, and I think it's an important component to what you're talking about for, for we'll say the packaging industry now, but going across everything is, is that your customers are not, they're, they're not just acquiring um, you know, turnkey solutions from Elevation Labs. They also have an idea and they go, oh, I really, want, I, I really want to buy a coffee mug. And 
the world is such that they go online and they buy a coffee mug and it shows up at their house tomorrow. There's a very different dynamic with how, uh, like I, I did not, I'm kind of, I don't know what I am. I think I'm a gen, like gen X millennial somewhere in the middle of those two. I was born in 1980, whatever that means. But you know, it, you used to have to get a catalog out and you'd have to flip through the catalog and you'd go, okay, this is what I want. And then you would, you'd fill out an order form. Then you'd mail the order form. It was very cumbersome. And, you know, now it's like, you know, I, I want a new mattress and I get on my phone and a new mattress shows up. So um, I think you're right on. I, there's, there's a lot of industries that are going to have to start to adjust. It's not just packaging. I think there's, there's just a lot of places within the supply chain um, that, that are going to be almost forced into a modernization of how they, how they conduct commerce and, and how, they, how they allow for quicker decision making. Um, I, I brought it up multiple times. I don't know why. Uh, when I, I used to source packaging um, and, I, and I would say, I don't know why I can custom design a sneaker. I love shoes. I can custom design a sneaker with Nike and have it show up at my house faster than it takes for me to get a quote. It feels like sometimes. So, you know, it's just, there's a, there's a, a, a shift that I think is going to have to take place necessarily. And a lot of these, this, this powerful generation that is the millennial generation, as much crap as they're given is going to start forcing that. Um, and I think it's good. I think it's a good change. So I, I like your magic wand idea. I'll, uh, I'll grant it to you if I ever have the power. Thanks. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's, uh, that's kind of all the questions that I have. So what, so if somebody's listening to this and, you know, they want to get in touch with Elevation Labs, they want to hear what they're doing. You know, like I said, uh, when we were doing the intro, we've got quite a few listeners in the U S uh, and across the globe. So what's the best way for them to interact with you? And, um, you know, who, who are the type of people that you would say, yeah, it would be great if you would reach out because uh, we've got a lot of really awesome things happening. Obviously, you treat people really well. Um, you've got a great culture. And from that, you're, you're driving a lot of awesome stuff. So how would people get in touch with, with Elevation or yourself? I think the easiest way is to go on our website, elevationlabs.com. And there's a contact us section on that that goes through our marketing and business development team. So, um, and then uh, if it's a customer looking to do business with us, then we quickly kind of work with that customer to work out what's going on. If it's a supplier, we'll get you in touch with our packaging and purchasing team. So uh, I think that's the best way to, to get in touch with us. You know, our, our mission statement is to deliver phenomenal customer experiences every day. And we believe, like, we, it's not just a fancy sign on a wall. It's a real thing. We talk about it. Our, every employee can quote that. Uh, uh, and it's through through uh, uh, engage and empower employees and while having a progressive impact to our community. So there's three elements of it, right? But all to deliver this phenomenal experience for our customers. So we're always looking for, you know, the top talent in the industry. We're looking for, um, you know, how do we continue to better ourselves? And it really is a continuous improvement organization. And we get great feedback from our customers on what we're doing well that they're happy with. And I always ask, what can we do better? So. If there's things you guys have seen out there that you think we could improve upon, I, I, lo I love hearing that uh, from our customers, from our employees, and from anybody else in the community. So we're, we're always working to drive that mission. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, we will we'll be in touch. Best of luck. Great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, for sure.